Researchers want to hear from patients. Patients and their families want to be involved. Why is this so hard to do? My name is Kevin Fryert. My 30-year career at Pfizer gave me a chance to learn about many facets of drug discovery and development. When I retired, I started Salem Oaks to help patients understand the world of biopharmaceutical R&D so that they can be more effective partners and shape the future of medicine. We think that if patients and researchers got to know each other as people, the conversations would be much easier to start. Each month on Unprobable Developments, I will interview scientists, investigators, and patients who are actively working in medical research and development. Our goal is to help patients and those who care about them to get to know the kinds of people working on their behalf. Welcome to Improbable Developments. Today we are speaking with Mary Rofael, the president of ProEd Communications. She is a longtime friend whom I have had the pleasure of working with on a couple of projects. The first time we worked together was about nine years ago when my team at Pfizer hired ProEd to help us prepare for an FDA advisory committee meeting. Mary is a physician with more than 20 years' experience as a senior strategist. She helps pharmaceutical, biotechnology, and medical device companies communicate complex data in ways that matter to healthcare providers, the patients they treat, and the regulators who protect them. In the course of her career with ProEd, she has developed strong relationships with leading experts in oncology, hematology, epidemiology, biostatistics, and other related specialties. Welcome, Mary. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your story? So really, three things have made me who I am today. First, I have to give great credit to my parents and particularly my father, who uh, after uh, we, I grew up in Egypt and after President Nasser confiscated all our family's belongings, my father said one thing that stuck with all of us. And he said, they can never take away your education. Um, and you'll see that all my cousins are educated because of that. They can really never take away your education. And then the second thing that made me who I am is that um, I grew up in a German school, so they did instill uh, some discipline and attention to detail in me, which has really served me well in my career. And then thirdly, uh, in my teens and 20s, I did a lot of volunteering with the Young Women's Christian Association, and I uh, led camps for underprivileged girls. And um, this has really impacted me in understanding the degree of disparity in, in the world and the unfairness that exists today. And I think everyone should probably get exposed to some of those situations so that, you know, we understand the, the, the need. I, I did camps for girls with a variety of hereditary diseases. And it's really important for one. And this has really shaped how I see uh, the need for the development of new therapies as well, even today. So yeah, what is your role today and, and how do you help new therapies come? What are you doing today? So what I do today is that um, I'm the president of a regulatory communications group, ProEd Communications. We help companies prepare for FDA advisory committee meetings, which are part of the regulatory process that brings drugs to, through the approval process. Okay, so ProEd Communications. When we first met, 
we had brought ProEd in to help us at Pfizer navigate this advisory committee process. How many of those have you done over your career? How many adcoms? Well, I've been doing this, um, and I started the FDA advisory committee business at ProEd in 1998. And since then, I have helped prepare over uh, 145 teams for these types of meetings and regulatory interactions. This has been across therapeutic areas uh, with a significant number, uh, primarily in oncology and rare disease, but we've touched on uh, every therapeutic area you can think of. So 145 of them. So many people I know from my career who've never been on one drug. They've, they've worked on projects all their, all their career, but never made a successful drug out of 145. To be involved in 145 that are to that level is amazing. So could you tell us a little bit about what takes place in EDCOM? Who participates? What's the purpose? When does it actually happen? So how does it work? Uh, you have to think about it this way. When FDA needs external advice on a drug, device, or biologic applications, it convenes an advisory committee. I think it's really important for the public and the patient community uh, to learn a little more about FDA advisory committees because these are public meetings and they are accessible for anyone to attend and learn from. Um, why would FDA convene an FDA advisory committee? Generally, when the FDA needs external advice on an application for a new drug, device, or biologic, uh, they do bring together a group of experts that they call an FDA advisory committee. Uh, and the advisory committee process is governed by rules and regulations like everything else the FDA does. But really, these meetings occur usually a few weeks, so a couple of months before the PDUFA date, which is the date FDA has to make a decision on approval. And they occur generally at the end of the development and review process. Who sits on an FDA advisory committee? Generally, it's a group of experts in the general therapeutic area. So for example, if this is a, a cancer drug, uh, the advisory committee would be the oncologic, uh, dr oncologic drugs advisory committee. And it would be comprised of a wide range of experts in oncology. Interestingly, if the FDA is reviewing a particular submission, let's say in breast cancer, they may not be enough experts in breast cancer, particularly on the committee. So FDA would supplement this ODAC or the Oncologic Advisory Committee with additional breast cancer experts. In addition to the therapeutic area experts, there are uh, experts in statistics, drug safety, and importantly, on every advisory committee, it's a patient representative and quite often a, a patient advocate as well. So it's really, it's really a process in which our patient community has the ability to also weigh in uh, with their insights on the development and the approval of these drugs. I've always been struck by that the membership of the advisory committee that you just explained there very closely mirrors the membership of the drug development team. They're the, same, they're the same types of experts there, and they're going to be talking about the same issues colleague to colleague. Exactly. And I think that the clinical perspective that, an, uh, that the clinicians on an advisory committee bring to the regulatory process, to the data and the science and the weight of evidence that FDA requires, really enriches the decision. So during a typical advisory committee, the sponsor would generally present their point of view on the application they have submitted for a new drug or for 
perhaps the safety of an existing drug or for a new indication of a drug that's already approved. And then this would be followed by a presentation by FDA of their point of view of what they see the issues are and what advice they need from the committee. Uh, and then the panel would have some time to ask both parties some questions, and that's important because companies spend a lot of time, as well as FDA, preparing for these questions. The panel then has time to deliberate the issues and votes on uh, whether to generally, whether to recommend or reject the approval of the drug biologic or, or, or device. Although the advice of the panel to FDA is not binding, you'll find that most of the time FDA will follow the committee's recommendation. I think that's an important point that it's not like the, at the end of this meeting, if the committee says, yes, it should be approved, that doesn't mean you have approval. That means they've gotten advice at FDA and hopefully you'll see an approval in, in a few weeks or a month or so, depending on the timing. So what challenges does a biopharma company have in presenting their case to the FDA or to an, to an ad comp? There's a couple of challenges. The biggest challenge in my mind is how to walk that fine line of being fully transparent about the issues. You know, no, there is no perfect data set. There's no perfect clinical trial. So the company has to embrace the warts and present these in a very transparent manner. But at the same time, they also need to present a persuasive case for why the drug should be approved. So that's a fine line, and it requires really um, an art, and it requires uh, one to be very honest and transparent, but yet passionate about the disease area. So that, I think, is one of the challenges. The other challenge is that, you know, because the FDA Advisory Committee is a public hearing, there is a lot of stake for the company. First of all, there is a lot of stake in terms of human cost. Think about all the patients who participated in the clinical trials and in the research, Think about the patient groups that are anticipating having a new therapy on the market. And there's also, you know, less important but still relevant, the financial investment in the research. There is a lot of stake for these companies and for the patient population in general. So these are high-profile projects, and companies must spend a lot of time preparing for them, ensuring they have the patient perspective, ensuring that the data they're presenting is credible and ensuring that the story is really passionate and that the argument holds water at the end of the day. So all those things are really challenging for scientists. They're going to stick to the data maybe and without even feeling the compassion or the passion for this. So it must be a real transformation for them to be able to present this in that way and walk that fine line. So how does ProEd actually help them with these challenges? What do you guys do to prepare people? So as you said, I mean, it is really hard, particularly for scientists who has been doing this research or, or doing the clinical research for a product for many, many years. Uh, to some extent, they do also become very close to the data, and they often need a kind of an objective outside perspective to see the warts and, you know, the warts that we talked about, and to know where the weaknesses and the strength of a particular clinical development program lie. So we provide that objective view. We also engage what we call a mock advisory committee panel. So we do mock panels to bring in external experts to also critique and provide that perspective for the sponsor. And then second and most importantly, we do help our clients communicate vast amounts of complex data in, in what we call like the five C's. And I think the five C's are a nice way to remember this for anything that any of you would communicate, right? You know, it's got to be clear. 
So if you, um, if you didn't work in the field, would you understand it? It's got to be compelling so that if you didn't work for the company or for the patient or you were not a patient, that you would still care. It's got to be credible. So it's really grounded in data. It's got to be concise because you don't have all day to present. You have to be able to present it really effectively. And it's also got to be consistent. So all the points of view that you present and all the speakers and responders present the same concept. These are not just, you know, principles of communications in an FDA advisory committee, but I think everything, everyone can learn something from the five C's that we use at, at Pro and Regulatory. And then finally, we also help clients get organized and, you know, use best practices so that they can get through this process. So as a drug developer, I saw the opportunity to go to an adcom. The reason that we met, like a football player would see the Super Bowl. This was the career defining game day. And obviously, football players spend their lives preparing and getting ready for that big opportunity. What is it really like, kind of in a human sense, preparing for an adcom? You know, preparations can be very intense. These advisory committees come to the project teams on top of their day job. So they're now preparing for a hearing in addition to doing their day-to-day work. And as I said before, these are high-profile projects within the company. There's a lot of stake for patients, for physicians. So it's a lot of pressure for the people who are participating. And then, you know, it's, it's important for, for uh, companies to ensure that either they have internal people who've had experience preparing for advisory committees or that they, you know, bring in a, a vendor or a, or a partner who can help them prepare efficiently so that every step kind of builds on the other and there's a trajectory of progress. It is also time consuming. You have to try to anticipate every question the panel may ask. And finally, it is a really interesting and intense academic challenge. It's more like a, a game of chess because you're really trying to figure out, are there scientific answers for these issues? And you look in the literature and you, you study so much. I think companies learn much more about their products when they have to prepare for an FDA advisory committee than if the drug gets approved without. Absolutely. I can remember us sitting down and, and coming up with all the questions we thought someone might ask and then figuring out, so what is the scientifically sound answer to those questions? And we went very far afield, but not as far afield as when you brought in one of those mock panels with some people who had expertise in the field and they would ask us something new. And we'd have to say, oh no, that's a question we didn't think of. And it was also looked at as how do we scientifically answer that question so that we do hit the five C's. And I can't repeat them really quickly there, but clear, credible, compelling, concise, consistent, which was hugely difficult because you've got different people standing up at different times, answering questions. You're looking at a data set that cover years and, and hundreds or thousands of patients. So it really was and intense. You called it intense. It was like you went to boot camp on your own product. And when you came out of it, you knew that product inside and out. You had digested all the data and you could, you could talk about it to anybody. The project we worked on was Vindical, which was being studied for a very rare disease. It was transthyretin familial amyloid polyneuropathy or TTRFAP. There are only about 8,000 people in, with TTRFAP in the world. And there's only a handful of experts. What challenges 
come with preparing for an adcom for such a rare disease? Um, I think rare disease outcomes are particularly interesting. First of all, you have to understand that the majority of people, even experts, don't have a good understanding of these rare diseases. So you have to spend during the advisory committee a significant amount of time educating the panel on the disease, the disease process, the meaningfulness of the endpoints, the burden to the patients. It's important to show videos of patients and their struggles because it brings home the important aspects of the disease. It brings that to life and it, it shows why these therapies are being developed and why they are important. Uh, the other challenge, obviously, is that it's usually a small uh, community of experts and physicians. So using them wisely, some of them will have to support the FDA. Some of them will have to help the sponsor prepare. It becomes a little bit of a challenge to find the right experts. But the good news, though, and I think this is what everyone has to keep in mind, is that I find that mo in most cases, patient advocacy groups, as well as the physicians, have tremendous passion. Uh, for finding cures for rare diseases. And, and to me, these are my most favorite advisory committees because, you know, you were, I worked with people who really care. For a long time, we didn't have therapies. And now we are at, the, you know, the, there's incredible scientific progress and we're, we're finding cures for some of the diseases for which, you know, we would never have imagined there would be a cure, you know, a decade ago, five years ago. People know that I'm, very much in the rare disease community. This, this is where I want to work. I find it thrilling to work with these people because of that passion and that the science is breaking. It's all coming together at once. And so the practicalities that you talk about that no one knows about the disease, that you've got to educate people just on the basics, that's not something you need to do for a more common disease where there's experts that, that have thoroughly understood this disease. And I really think that, you know, in, in, with that perspective, I think patient advocacy groups in general could do more in educating the public on, on, their, on, on rare disease. I don't think that as a community, we do this. It's very interesting because it's the other side of that is they're learning as they go. Um, I think put a plug in for my other podcast that I do. It's called Raising Rare. I'm working with a young man who's got a son who was born with a, a rare gen genetic variant of the GPX4 gene, there are nine people in the world with it, and he's looking for a treatment and cure. So if you want to listen to his story, raisingrare.fm. I'd like to turn to the human side of this, because that's what we do here on Improbable Developments. We want to surface the human stories behind the medicines, you know, the funny things, the sad things, the inspiring things, the things you'd talk about with your colleagues, you know, remember when we did that one? So do you have any stories you could share? Well, there's a couple of stories. They may not, they may not be quite funny, but uh, as a physician by training and a regulatory communications expert, I often find myself having to balance like the data, the statutory requirements for approval within the clinical and human side of the unmet need of the disease and the burden to the patient. And, and how do you, you know, balance that? The data, as we said earlier, are not always clean and often lend themselves to different interpretations. So I do pay a lot of attention to the open public hearing section of the advisory committees, which at every advisory committee, there is a section where the public can present, anyone from the public present, and typically patients and patient advocacy uh, present their case as well. 
So I remember the first ERESA advisory committee. There was uh, this young woman, 19 year old with lung cancer, never smoker. She really put the entire room to tears because of her youth, her passion, and because ultimately the treatment had worked for her. Data generally, from if you look at it from a population perspective, wasn't the greatest, but it had worked for her. And, and this was years before we had, you know, the current advances in lung cancer therapy. So I, I really will never forget her. I learned later that she did succumb to the disease eventually, but her passion and the way she talked about her disease and, and how the therapy worked for her was something that I remember a lot. I think about a lot. The other story for me that's maybe, you know, a lot more personal for me is that I am a breast cancer survivor. And when I was uh, receiving chemotherapy, I remember the first episode of fatigue. And I remember telling myself, hmm, I must have written the word fatigue on hundreds of slides and tables that summarize safety data for chemotherapy drugs and oncology agents. I really never understood what it actually meant how it felt to a patient. This was really a turning point for me in in how I now evaluate the benefit risk and what's important from a patient perspective and how important it is to understand the impact on patients and that things are not just numbers and statistics. And that I think was a turning point as well for me in in many ways. Talk to several people on this this podcast who their professional perspective and excellence was changed when they were sitting on the other side of the question, when they became patients. And as you say, fatigue, it just sounds like, oh yeah, there's fatigue. You know, 40% of the people experience fatigue and you just go, yep, yep, that's what happened. It's not one that you sit there and dwell on when you're looking through your data. When you're, fa- when, when you're fatigued, <laughs> it's much different. It drains the life out of you. Exactly. And, and you can't quantify that, or it's very difficult to quantify that. But the way you express it drains the life out of you. That's huge, because that's, that's a, something that we should you know, pay attention to and find a way to pay attention to. So those are great stories. I think the, the, the public section of the advisory committees, they're just heart ripping. They just, they just grab you and go, wow. I can see what it's like. I can see what it's like. I can't know what it's like, but I can see what it's like to be struggling with this disease. And I think that it's very powerful. And I hope that patient advocates understand that. I think they do. But this is a place where they can have a real impact. And I'm talking to you advocates out there. Watch for these advisory committees to come up and get yourself out there because you can change the future of medicine by doing this. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us in these Kind of strange times we're living in. Well, certainly. I mean, uh, today's June 19th, and I would be remiss if I don't speak about this. It's really a special moment in our nation's history. And I think we need to reflect on our role in bringing justice to minorities, to people of color, people with disabilities, not just in the U.S., but worldwide. You know, Kevin, no one really ever wakes up to say, I'm going to be racist today. But we all do things that are subtle that we can improve upon. You know, you may judge more critically those who don't speak like you. Uh, you may be more trusting of those who look like you. And you may engage less with those who act or dress different. 
And, and these behaviors are at the heart of much of the pain that we feel today. And, and they cannot be fixed by the law. They cannot be fixed by, you know, legislation. I think it's only by love that we, we can overcome some of these behaviors that are, you know, subtle and, and yet hurtful at the same time. I don't think I can add anything to that. Thank you so much for, for making that strong statement. And I totally agree with you. It, we've got to start with loving each other and stop looking at the differences that really don't create a difference. So I want to thank you so much, Mary, for spending time with us today, for sharing your experiences, your expertise, your life story. And I wondered is, how do people get in contact with you? What's the best way for them to find you and your company? Uh, certainly the easiest way to get to find me is on LinkedIn. My name is Mary Rafael. You can also reach me on uh, my personal email, mnrofael at gmail.com, or my office email, uh, mary uh, mrofael at hcg-int.com. Or you can get in touch with Kevin, and he'll get you in touch with me. Thank you very much. We'll include that information in the show notes. And thank you once again. Thank you, Kevin. Please subscribe to Improbable Developments wherever you get your podcasts. And tell your friends to give us a listen.